Hi, everyone. This is Andy, host of the Alternative Investment Podcast. I'm really excited for the mini series we have this week on venture capital investing. You know, I've done a lot of angel investing in my life. I'm a limited partner in one VC fund, but I'm hungry to learn more. And the roster of guests that we have lined up this week, uh, they were really so generous in sharing their insights and knowledge on VC investing. So I really hope you enjoy this mini series this week on VC. Now, if this show has helped you at all, I have one ask of you, which is could you log on to Apple Podcasts or Spotify, leave us a rating and review. It doesn't take much time. It helps spread the word to other investors and entrepreneurs, and it would really mean the world to me. Thanks so much and enjoy the miniseries. You're listening to the Alternative Investment Podcast. We give you the insights and strategies you need to grow your wealth with alternative investments. Now, here's your host, Andy Hagens. Welcome to the Alternative Investment Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Hagens. And today we're talking about a really exciting topic, something that honestly is on my bucket list. We're talking about taking a company to IPO because there's actually a process to that. There's actually a framework to that. It's not just like I have a good business and I get lucky and I'm able to IPO. There's a very <laughs> intentional framework and the companies that do it, you're going to notice some patterns that do it. So I'm very excited that joining me is Cole Shepard, partner at Legacy Group. Cole, welcome to the show. Thank you, Andy. Nice to be here. Yeah. And this is continuing our series on venture capital. We're doing a little mini series on venture capital on the show. And you know, I know Legacy Group, strictly speaking, isn't venture capital. You're more on the private equity side. But I think we're going to be talking about a lot of strategies and tactics and ideas that are frankly are relevant and applicable to both venture capital, private equity, really any company that's trying to scale. But before we get into all of those, you know, ideas, strategies, and tactics, Cole, could you tell us a little bit more about Legacy Group and your portfolio companies? Sure. Sure. So Legacy Group is an asset manager uh, really operating with US capital down here in Latin America. We focus on Colombia largely. Uh, while I wouldn't say we're venture capital, I wouldn't say we're purely private equity as well. We work with early and mid-stage companies, uh, and we basically are a mixture of investors and company builders. And that's what we do. Uh, we do heavy concentrated bets in a small number of portfolio companies. So where I'm recording from today is actually one of our portfolio companies. They're one of the best in digital arts and entertainment here in Medellin, Colombia. Um, so I'm recording from one of their studios. And our largest portfolio company is a company I founded in 2017 called Green Coffee Company. Uh, we started with about you know $5.7 million in investment, since have placed about $50 million of equity into the company. And we've come, become the largest consolidated producer of coffee in the country when the national product is, is coffee in Colombia. So I've seen your presentation a couple of times for uh, the coffee company. Is the goal there to IPO? That's right. So what we'll do for that one is we'll do dual track it. So we'll prepare the company for a private sale or for, let's say, a, a big private equity buyout from our basically smaller retail investors, or we'll go for an IPO. Uh, really, the structure of doing that is exactly the same. Basically, you're taking a small emerging company, making it a mid-scale company, and then getting to the reporting and the sophistication of what U.S. public companies need to report at. So no matter if you're selling it in a, a private market or you're selling equity in a public market, really you want to be the company at a level of sophistication that can do any. And basically, you're an omnivore to capital at that point. 
Yeah. And I, I love what you kind of said that the process is the same. So this reminds me, I've sold four different businesses to private equity. And yes. it's funny. It's like the same freaking fire drill every time. And it's not, <laughs> a, to be honest, it's a different, yeah. I think it's the same concept, but it's a different scale and a different level. Like every time there's like a, there's probably 25, 50 things like this. You're like, oh, it turns out we never sold our, or we never signed our operating agreement. Turns out we <laughs> yes. need to sign our operating yeah. agreement before we can sell all of our assets to this private equity company. That's right. There's just like, you got to, you got to cross the T's, you got to dot the I's. Those are kind of like the little things. I don't think that's really what we're talking about. What we're talking about more is enterprise value because some businesses, mm -hmm. a lot of small businesses are really just like glorified jobs for yes. the founder that, you know, it's like a founder has found themselves a way to have essentially five or 10 assistants, but they're really driving all the value and it's not really <laughs> systematized. It's not really, there's not really enterprise value that will necessarily survive once someone else acquires the business. So the trick is to not just have a glorified job, but to build enterprise value and systems and you know repeatable, scalable things to where another buyer can come in and say, oh, that's value. We want to take that asset we want to purchase it and grow it even more. Now you've built a business. That's no longer just a glorified job for one person, right? Agreed completely. Uh, agreed completely. I think that's the way you need to think about taking a company public is make a company that's going to last and be valuable to somebody else. It's same same concept as anything in the world. How much is the equity worth in a company? How much someone's willing to pay for it? Uh, and I think you're you're seeing nowadays, I mean, you really need to create profitable companies to IPO uh, you're seeing dips in public markets. I mean, you really need to prepare companies. And I think you'll see less and less companies with one product that looks really sexy at the time, losing money, being able to raise a tremendous amount of capital on, on public markets because uh, you're just not seeing that risk appetite. Yeah. And it's, it, it's another interesting thing that you kind of pointed out that depending on the timing, the public markets may not even be that appealing and so you may not want, you know, you may not want your liquidity event to be going public. And going back to my own experiences, I haven't scaled anything anywhere near to the point of an IPO. Mm -hmm. But I, I, I will say in that process of building a company to exit, you kind of learn, okay, we need systems, we need repeatable processes. And then you sell it, it just that process of preparing the company to sell. There are some really stressful and annoying parts of it that are never fun, but the overall process actually just creates value in and of itself because it forces you to take on that external perspective mm -hmm. and be like, it's not just about top line revenue or whatever. It's actually about how stable is this? You know, if, if I get hit by a bus tomorrow, is this organization yeah. <laughs> going to, so, so it actually yeah. like, it kind of forces you to do some really good organizational things, regardless, even if you never end up IPOing, or even if you never sell to private equity, it's like, I've strengthened my organization merely by following this process. That's right. I mean, I think what you're going to see is there's a reason why public U.S. public companies operate in the manner they do, uh, and it's what stakeholders demand of them. Whether it's you know regulators or investors or counterparties such as clients, customers, suppliers, they operate in the manner they do because it's best operating practice in the world. Um, you're going to see 
companies that want to sell to private equity. It doesn't matter if you go public, say on a public market or private market, public equities want to see the exact same thing. Private equity firms want to see companies that have the optionality that can go public if they want to, but they choose to stay private. It can be a valuation issue. It can be a regulation issue. It can be, we want to stay under the radar kind of issue. Mm -hmm. uh, but there's a number of reasons why companies don't go public. But I agree with you completely, Andy, that developing a company uh, shouldn't be restrictive around, okay, I need to do this because I'm going public. I think a lot of the, the roadmap that you do and the milestones you hit, you need to do when you grow a company from what I, I always call like an early stage startup, kind of a test of thesis. And then when you go into an IPO level company, I call it like, it's a big boy operation, right? That's your enterprise value kind of operation. And then at that point, you have more. To me, public markets are just another tool in the tool belt of saying, is this a useful tool at the time? Does, does the market line up for me? Or should I use a different tool to get my end goal? And if capital is one goal, maybe a private market is sufficient for you and you don't actually need to dip into public markets. If there's another goal in mind, maybe you want to dip into public markets. It really depends on where the company is at and what do the stakeholders really want to do. Yeah, and that's interesting. It's it's kind of like be careful what you wish for. Um, back back to my experiences, you know, after exiting several companies, I've realized, well, shoot, if you build a company enough that someone in private equity wants to buy it, and then as part mm -hmm. of that process, you sort of solidify it and make it into a more stable organization. I've realized years later, like, why the heck did I want? Why was I in a rush to sell that? Right. So like That's now right. my now my current goal is to, is to do it again and build a company like that again, or but but then to not sell it. Like if this is a nice, stable, growing company, why why the heck am I selling? Definitely, that's so that's I, that's a great concept. I'm sorry to cut you off, Andy, but yeah. I think that's a really important topic that not enough people really talk about. Is they always think about liquidity events and really term horizons, especially for private capital. You don't talk about as much with public capital. Public capital, usually it's not, I'm going to hold this for three and a half years and I have to sell because that's my capital churn that I have to keep up, right? But with private capital, you see that all the time. Uh, I think you'll see numerous studies and obviously your, your whole business is around alts and around private capital is that a lot of guys, they want to exit as soon as you have an IPO event. That doesn't mean all the values gone in a, in a company. You know, mm -hmm. I think in a lot of people think in that simplistic term, you're either in a private market or you're in a public market. And then there's no really dipping in between. You're seeing more of what I would say the successful asset managers and fund managers dipping into both, right? So there's, there's guys that say, look, my goal is to find arbitrage and I will take a company, whether it's seed, if I think it's special, or it's a series C where they're a midterm growth company, or I'll even participate at a pre-IPO or IPO stage, but I think the company can get to the next level. Mm -hmm. And so what, what I really like about that is people are going back to like, what is the basis of capitalism and say, I want to invest in companies that are doing something special. And I think if I have the value, the valuation that makes sense for the value that they're providing and the value to me, I have a longer term time horizon and I'm not set by term limits, which I think I, I haven't seen it much in my career before the last like maybe like the last five years where you see hedge fund managers start dipping into private. And then you see some of the private equity guys start holding positions past IPO. Now they might be trading it 
between different like portfolio funds, but they're still the they're still the ultimate manager of that fund, and they might be trading underneath. But they take long term positions on companies they think are special, and I think that's a great it's a great theme, and I think those guys are doing the right thing. Yeah. So the public markets, private markets. I mean, these are tools, right? These are tools of capitalism. It's that's not right. like it's not the end all be all. But the, I I do have to say though, Cole, that you know for me I professionally bucket list. I got mm-hmm. three, three things. Number one, I want to be in the print issue of Barron's, you know, yeah. <laughs> so yes. real, that's to yes. me, that's, I love Wall Street yes. Journal, but to me, Barron's is like, that's my ultimate, not the website, the print mm-hmm. edition. Okay. Print edition. Yep. Number two, I want to ring the bell, open the New York stock exchange, you know, trading day. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. That one oh, might yeah. be, the, e- that might be the easiest of all these. Um, yes. Yeah. Have you done it? I have never done it. Uh, we've worked with clients when my old life, when I worked at PwC, yeah. we worked on a lot of, you know, when I was a dorky accountant, you know, in the <laughs> audit days, you know, we worked on a lot of S1s. You take clients public, you know, accounting's never, you don't get any credit for being the the accounting advisor <laughs> on, a, on a public issue. You know, my yeah. partner's, uh, he's a securities attorney. He's probably gets to sit in the front row. The attorneys are, you know, higher. It's like the investment bankers, the attorneys, and the accountants are in the way back. Um, so I've never personally rung the bell. But I, I have worked with companies that have, you know, and well, I think ringing the bell, honestly, with the small cap exchanges now that both NYSE and the NASDAQ have, you know, we're seeing, you know, I see some competitors, even in even in the coffee space that you'd say, usually you need a really balanced sheet heavy business. I mean, we see guys going public with $10 million in net assets, $5 million in net assets, you know, $10, $20 million of revenue. Not to say that it's the right thing to do and the correct capital raising strategy. Uh, but actually to to get on those exchanges isn't as difficult as as many people think, actually. A lot of it's a check the box exercise. Mm. And if you can do if you can meet all the points, you can be a public company. Fair enough. Well I was so I was gonna mm-hmm. say number three, I want to be part of a team that takes a company public, right? And there you go. There I don't know go. that I don't know that I'd want to be the the leading person and all that, you know, because <laughs> it's probably it might be more out. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk. You sent me some notes, which I really appreciated. Just kind of big sure. picture, and I because I, every company is going to be a little different, right? And mm-hmm. for some companies, the threshold to go public for for one type of company might be what a two or three billion dollar valuation. And the, but sure. you already men- you mentioned the other end of the spectrum. So oh yeah, it's, it's not always going to be this one size fits all template. But you mentioned uh, three sort of broad phases. Mm-hmm. Could you just introduce us to those phases briefly? Sure. And those are they're probably my own terminology, but it's how I, I think about companies and kind of the different stages that they go through prior to getting to like a fully developed IPO level company. First would be like a seed level. That'd be the cliche of the funding term seed, but really approve a thesis, right? And so, and I'll introduce each one of these kind of as we go. So every company that starts out, you're going to start out with pure risk capital. Right, even if you're a balance sheet backed business, like it's going to be pure risk capital. You you have a thesis, the founder and probably a management team, hopefully smart guys have a thesis that they want to test out, and usually you test it with a, a relatively small amount of money. You know, you'd see tech guys come in with two hundred fifty, five hundred thousand dollar equity stacks, and then you'll see balance sheet heavy businesses come in with whatever the management team feels comfortable. There's some seeds that might start with fifty million dollars. There's some guys that might start with ten million dollars. Like when we when we did ours for coffee, we did it with. million. 
And what you really need to do at that stage is develop the thesis, make sure it wor- your product works in the market and make sure the market responds to the business. And probably most importantly out of that is the comp- someone could logically as an outsider see growth, right? And say, look, I see what you guys are doing. Even if you're not fully profitable, you're growing revenues. And I can see, while if you push more capital into the business, the market needs that. You have something that's unique. So if I could, if I could summarize that just a couple words, product sure. market, product market fit, not, yes. per, not, not perfect, but, but some, <laughs> yeah. and then, yes. and then traction, because That's then right. I agree, it, it doesn't mean you need to be making bank that you need to be, you know, 20% profit margin it might be negative profit margin. That's right. But I, I think at that phase, a lot of pro- private equity guys, we like to see offense, right? Because we're like, well, Definitely. you can always trim costs later. Can the, is is can the revenue grow? Can it grow at a pretty quick, you know, pace? That's I right. That I think you're exactly right. I mean, that that's what most guys are measuring at that point is revenue. They want to see revenue growth, and they want to. And I think more versus ten years ago, people want to see that your opex isn't burning like crazy, right? Yeah. They don't want to see. Oh yeah, you're going. You took it from a million to ten million dollars in revenue in a year, but you took your opex from one million to fifty million, right? That 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 model isn't. I don't think it's yeah. going to work for too much longer. People aren't going to fund losses with equity forever, and I think that's why you're seeing less money go into some of these VC deals these days because they're not willing to fund losses with with equity. Um, but you're exactly right. That that overview is that product mix or product fit, market accepts it, and then basically at the end of that, you say, look. I can logically tell and show with historical results what I've done in the market and why the business makes sense. And then you can get to the next level. Now, certain companies, they don't have to actually raise capital to get to that level. I mean, there's certain companies that raise enough capital to organically grow to the next level. It depends what your timeline is. So to give an example down in Latin America, you know, the VC markets, the private equity markets aren't nearly as efficient in Latin America as they are in the United States. So you would never be able to get to that developed stage if you weren't profitable. So there's like almost zero companies that get past that initial stage in, in Latin America that aren't aren't profitable at the end of kind of reaching the KPI and say, look, I've got a developed thesis. I've proven it to the market. Usually, I mean, in my mind, that usually takes two to five years, somewhere depending on the market that you're in and, and, and whatnot. So um, and then the nature of it is you can prove to an outside party that you get to the next stage. But you might right? be at, at that stage. Let's say you're at two million revenue or five million revenue or or whatever. Sure. You might you might be what I was talking about, which is you have one founder who, yes. or or two who are based essentially the whole thing. Like they they have a team, yeah. but like if they get hit by a bus, it's like well, it's this over. Is, you, we can all go home. It's over. It's over. I mean, that that was one of the main things when I wrote the notes to you, uh, Andy, is like a lot of things at that stage, like at that early stage, you always talk about risk capital when you're an investor, but that business has massive human capital risk. It's mm-hmm. at the beginning stage of any company, you got one to five people maximum that if they're all on a plane and it goes down, it's over. Right. Well, it's, funny, it's funny. It's funny. It's funny. Yeah. Just hitting home here. I'm remembering an experience when a partner and I were gearing up to sell a business to private equity. Mm-hmm. And they were like, have you ever considered you and your partner getting key man's insurance? And I oh, was yeah. like, 
I was like, what is that? That literally sounds like a joke. <laughs> I was like laughing. I was like, that's uh, not a thing. And they were yes. like, they oh, were yeah. like, no, it's definitely a thing. And we're, like, we're like, what are you talking about? We have this awesome business. It's growing, yada, yada. And they're like, yeah, it's really cool, but you don't understand. There's arguably not a lot of enterprise value in the sense that once you step away, there's a ton of risk. So 100%. I, I think that, that's what they were getting at. But we, did, we did not end up buying the key man's insurance. Uh, yeah. Do people actually buy that? People do. Um, I've seen it from some like institutional investors might require it on mm. on some funding rounds. It's almost like you're getting a mortgage from a bank and they require you to have an insurance on a house. Uh, same concept. You know, there are I know of, there are institutional investors that require that for sure. I just can't, and, I just can't see it paying out. I mean, maybe it. It's a difficult one. I mean, especially on early stage companies, you're buying basically life insurance on a couple founders. And, and it also matters to me is how, how much money are you deploying, right? If you're yeah. doing $250,000, $500,000 equity like placements, you don't have a lot of capital to work with. And you start blowing it on life insurance for a couple founders. You say, look, I'm pretty sure that 10,000 bucks or whatever you're spending on life insurance proceeds could be used probably for something a little better to make sure that business gets to the next level. Yeah, and that's exactly. The, yeah. And at, at, that, at that investment phase, I mean, isn't it kind of like, yeah, it is risky. The risk comes with the territory. Because, 100%. And, and looking back, those investors that we were working with, they did very, very, very well. Like they did take a risk, you know, but they did Definitely. very so. And like, I'm guessing like with, with your all portfolio companies, even now at like the current valuation, the Definitely. folks who got in on that first 5.7 million seed round, they took oh, yeah. a lot of risk, but they're probably- They're way up. Much, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah that's 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 the whole thing. The, the risk reward is, is always way higher to come in in a seed. Uh, but, you know, as an individual, let's say in ordinary retail investors, that they don't like to see things go to zero. You know, so but that's the risk when you invested it at a seed round, you know, for us, you know, I would say if we wouldn't we wouldn't have the coffee company doing balance sheet focus, which is, you know, you have a heavy collateral background, even if something was to go wrong, you know, everything is backed by fixed assets infrastructure. So that that's is probably so, and Cole, that's such a difference with venture capital. I feel like oh. we're going to. We're going to build a new crypto ecosystem for this. It's like, <laughs> if that doesn't work, there's nothing yeah. there. You know, whereas, whereas if we repo your business, like there's a ton of machinery, oh, there's totally. tons and tons of, you know, there's a lot of there. Totally. There. And we're not yeah. going to repo your business. You know, I'm just, just saying. Well, thank from... you. Thank you for not repoing the business. <laughs> but you're exactly right, Andy. I mean, a lot of, I, I, I always split businesses. I know it's a really simplistic way to do it, but I say it's a balance sheet business or it's a P&L business. Everything mm -hmm. you're talking about are P&L businesses, right? Heavy on your, your whole like CapEx space is people, right? It's usually people. You know, if you're building a venture capital backed crypto planet investor investment vehicle, you know, you're right. If the if the thesis doesn't work, you're down to zero, right? You're well, some of these they might have liabilities, you know, for some of these guys getting sued and whatnot, going around banking regulation. Uh, but theoretically, if you're a LP investor, you're just a regular stock investor, your your risk limited up goes to zero. But right. you know, if you're doing, you know, but you still have one of the things I think about VC investing is everyone always focuses on VC as always being seed in those PL businesses, right? Tech focused businesses, whether it's apps or a new 
algorithmic program that can do, let's say, trading on the New York Stock Exchange in a better way, whatever it is, uh, those are very high risk. And if you were to think about it like a VC, you say, look, I need one of these to pay off. I need two of them to maybe get my money back and all the rest of them go to zero. Power law, that, right? Power law, exactly the power law. Mm-hmm. And you know there are other businesses out there that are either collateral back more close to a, what I would say is a pure balance sheet business that once you build out the balance sheet, you're there forever, right? So There's always going to be if, value if there. I'm, yeah, if I'm investing in those kind of businesses, so mentioning VC, it's like um, I have one grand slam, two singles, yeah, and thirty-seven <laughs> strikeouts or so. Whereas that's right for for uh, a capital intensive business, a balance sheet business, it might be if I get five hits, one strikeout, one single, one double, one triple, one home run, something distribution. That's like right. That. Okay, that's right. That that's the way I would look at it. I mean, I, I think I think the balance sheet businesses honestly get a bad rap. You know, I love the balance sheet businesses. You know, they're they're more difficult to replicate. If you said, is there a competitive mode around it? There is. You need capital to play, especially in places like Latin America or any emerging market, whether you're doing Africa deals or Southeast Asia deals. You know, a lot of those markets, capital is scarce. So if you can come in with a scarce resource, whether it's capital or human capital, and come in and, and basically build a competitive mode of a balance sheet business, and you're not just wasting money and splashing it, you're actually building, you know, valuable assets. Uh, it's an interesting proposition where, especially in early stage balance sheet businesses, they, they don't banks aren't taking a lot of the, the risk on funding them. So if you come in with equity, you come in that mix of equity, or maybe you can even do some private debt. I think there's a massive room to play there. Uh, and everyone always focuses on the P&L businesses because they want to see the ability to get 10,000 X returns. And they like that one home run Whereas I'd say, look, if you're hitting singles and doubles and you say, look, I want to invest in a balance sheet business at a seed round and I'm willing to hold it, let's say 10 years and you're comfortable saying, look, I can make five, 10 times my money on that. I might not make 10,000 times my money, but if you say, look, I can make five to 10 and I'm collateralized the entire time with massive downside risk protection. I think a lot of the high net worth guys, they, they like that kind of thought process and that kind of you know strategy. I know I do. I know yeah. I do. Well, <laughs> yeah. So let's, well then, okay, we're talking, we talked about the seed round and, and it's kind of, it's a little different for that asset backed business versus the sure. P&L business. What's the next, I mean, I, I kind of see where this is going. There's going to be a, a muddy middle. There's going to be this, the That's next right. phase, the next phase is the phase that most people don't understand. Like a guy like me, I'm like, oh, this is the phase I've never gotten to. Like yes. even, even my successful businesses, they kind of, exited kind of at the end of this seed round type size or whatever. So what's the next phase? I think the next phase is really, you have a core thesis at the end of your seed round, right? Where you're developing a company, you say, look, I can prove it. Uh, You're either regurgitating capital that you're growing organically, or you're bringing in outside capital and you're building upon that existing thesis, right? So You're basically saying, I'm going to do my thesis of whatever I've already proven, and I'm going to do it at a bigger scale. Now, maybe you're building out a couple like ancillary revenue streams on there, but you have a core business at that time. It theoretically works, and you're throwing in capital to make sure it works on a larger scale. Now, is this this the phase where we fire the founder and we bring in the more professional management? that, That is a excellent point, and that can happen. 
And that okay. I, I say that's this is the stage where you have to honestly, I, I like to do this with all the companies and I do it with legacy and me and my partner do it all the time. You know, we'll say, are are the people that we have the right guys for what we're doing at the time we're doing it? And and let me give you an example, a real life example. So for instance, when we started the seed round of the coffee company, I would step into a lot of executive roles at the time. I might be the CEO for a day, I might be the CFO, I might be the head trader of coffee, right? You're on a lot of operational calls. Mm -hmm. But when we got to the stage where the thesis was ultimately proven, we had control of the company, people could see what we're trying to do, and we can start raising what I would say is more big boy money you know, we had to look at it and say, are we the right guys really to be running this company? And the answer is no. You we're fired not. yourself. Fired myself, right? Yeah. You got to fire. Like, yeah. And I think that's really important and say, like, what are you actually good at and where do you actually add value? I think you see a lot of founders are, are like the original five people or whatever it is. They mm -hmm. think, oh, I was here first, so I'm going to ride it all the way to the top. When in reality, if, if their goal is, I want to make the most powerful enterprise we can do, or make a lot of them just say, I want to make as much money as possible, you know, them not being there actually can make them more money or well, it can make the business stronger. The organization is just going to change because in a five-person organization or, or maybe even up to 10 people or whatever, if you're a founder and you're like, I, I want to do X, I want to do Y, you might even just be operating on gut instinct of what needs done <laughs> yeah. next. And so That's you're right. like- I just know we need to invest into Google AdWords. Let's go do That's it right, right now. I'm like literally yeah. on the computer right now, logging into Google. That's right. You you can't survive that kind of thinking with 10, 15, 20, 50 people in your organization. You like, I think you're right. You need an HR department, right? Like you need, <laughs> you need policies. And I just think it's some uh. of its personality, like the type of person that thrives in the wild west creative you know, for that atmosphere, a lot of times they're going to be miserable. Oh, yeah. Mid-sized organization. I've definitely seen that. I, I mean, you have guys, and I agree with you, a lot of those at the early stage, especially when you're in markets that are inefficient, frustrating, what not efficient places to do business in, you have guys that are good founders that can put out fires. And they're putting out fires every minute of every day, right? That's really their job. They, If you had to say, what do you do in an average day? That guy will tell you, uh, I put up fires and I just try to make sure the train doesn't go off the tracks in reality. That's, that's, what, and they're just trying to get like day by day to the next, it's like living paycheck to paycheck, but you get paid on a minute by minute basis. And it's possible if you don't get paid the next minute, it's all over, right? Cause the, the risk is high when you're in a seed level company, you know, that same person, when you start talking, when you get to the next level that we're saying that, that growth level, when you start really start growing on that thesis, you know, you have to think strategically. You need to make decisions that aren't one day out. You need to say, I need to be thinking for like short term would be a year. Midterm might be two to three. And then long term and say, am I meeting? I have to start thinking about my stakeholders on a four or five, 10 year basis. And what are we trying to do? What is the train that we're trying or the train tracks we're trying to build? And where are we going? And if you can't, do that at the second at the second stage of a company or what I consider a second stage of a company, you can't leave the company, right? You, you, you can't do it. It's, it's just not possible. I love the vehicle uh, analogy. I, I pretty much use like two or three analogies over and over. Baseball, I'm a baseball guy, so mm -hmm. I love baseball. But yes. I love the train analogy because I'm thinking the startup, the seed company, 
that's like a, a Ferrari F430 or something. Like yeah. <laughs> if I'm heading into a corner, I need to make a sharp turn. Like, mm -hmm. boom, I slam on the brakes. I make that sharp turn. But you're talking about laying train tracks. I'm like, you know, a train can't just turn on a dime, right? Nope. A train, you have to be planning way, way, way ahead. That's correct. To, to, to pilot the train or to conduct the train, whatever the <laughs> word is. So, <laughs> so is this phase, I guess it, it sounds to me, we talked briefly about, you know, new revenue streams, scaling revenue streams, but mm -hmm. most of what we've discussed here is more like human organizational team, you know, team and talent type stuff. I think so. I mean, any, when I think about building a company, I actually think the human capital is way more important than the physical capital. You'll, you'll see companies just, uh, sorry to say, the way so much money on on dumb stuff because they don't have the right guys in the right seats right so i think ev every stage and I, I would encourage like companies to do it every month probably and say do we have the right people in the right seats and are we driving in the right direction for your for your car analogy you'll find that at different stage of a company growth not only can certain people not perform at the level that you want them to be they, they don't like being there I mean, I think if you go back to your founder analogy, if you really sat down with some of these founders and they get to the stage where it's really growing, they just got a $50 million check or whatever to build out the thesis completely. A lot of those guys like the scrap. They like the fight. They like starting from zero. My, my partner, it, my partner, Rich, he calls it the scrounge. The scrounge. It's like, exactly. Yeah, it's, it's like a it's rugby like, pit, you know? Exactly. Yeah. No, they, they want to be in the trenches. They, they, and, and honestly, when you, you get conditioned to that seed fate, you know, you were talking about the 10, 10 K for key man's insurance. Mm -hmm. If you're in a startup, it's like absurd. It's like, are you serious? I would, that oh, I would spend 10, I could put 10 K into AdWords. I could do a million things with $10,000 that are totally. better than buying some stupid, but you can't think that way with a, a, a organization that's doing 15 million in top line. No. or even 10 million, you you need to start understanding like talent is going to be expensive. Sometimes, by the way, the worst decision is to try and like hire, you know, cheaper talent. It's like, actually, you want to pay up for the good talent. But I as agree. A founder, completely. As a founder, though, it's like crazy. It's like, no, you don't understand. We are we scrimp. We say yeah. we stretch every <laughs> dollar. It's just like it's hard to unwire yourself from that startup mentality. I agree with you. I agree. And it, like, especially at the second phase, you need to get comfortable spending money and understand when something doesn't work, you cut it. Right. And you can't, you can't, you, you obviously have to be better. You have to be good with money, but you can't do the scrimp and the scraving of the, the seed round level guy. If you're, if you're worried about a $10,000 spend and you just raised 50 million bucks that you need to deploy within, let's say 18 months, and you're yeah. going down crazy into every line item and say, why did we spend $37 on this Google AdWord? I would have done it in a different way. You, yeah. you got to step back and say, what, what, what is the macro goal we're trying to achieve here? Right. And then I agree with you completely on the human capital side. The To me, the most important people that are the most important thing you can do is get the smartest people around you that can build a business. Right. And any any founder, one guy that thinks you can build a business, especially a like a balance sheet business that isn't based on like one algorithm or something like that. The mm -hmm. smart the people are going to build the business, not one person. I think we overestimate the importance of one person on the majority of businesses. In reality, you'll have a group of high level people. 
that grow and build a company. And without those people, the company would never get to where it was. It was it wasn't one guy ever. So ever. okay, I'm gonna one more analogy. We're gonna we're gonna do the horse racing. You're mm-hmm. the founder. If you get if you get that company to whatever traction, five, seven, whatever million bucks in revenue, mm-hmm. you're a stallion, right? You're a stallion. Yes. You're yes. you're a high performance racehorse. But this next phase, you really need like 10 stallions. Yes. Right? Like you need a stallion CFO. It not the type of person who's gonna be intimidated by a founder or who the founder needs to micromanage and say, Oh no, you did this wrong. I would do it better. Like, Definitely. No, they need to all basically be better than you. Yeah, you know? I, I think you're exactly right, Andy. I mean, at, you're, you're right. At the at the seed level stage, the guys who do the best oftentimes are massive micromanagers, massive, right? They want to be in control, touch every point of contact with either with the client, with the investor, with the supplier, with whoever, right? But if you try to run a business that's scaling like crazy in this second level, you, you'll just miss things. You'll care about certain things. And then everything else will get completely overlooked. And all those other things that you don't think are important, probably are important to some counterparty out there, right? Mm-hmm. So when you rely on purely the judgment of someone who's micromanaging and they they take everything they do is going to be great for the things they focus on, but for the things outside of that, they're going to get neglected. And so that's when the delegation becomes important. And exactly what you're saying, Andy, you everything that's a core process of the business that needs to get built out that you didn't have when you're a seed round, especially things like HR, you need uh, a superstar of HR to run that department. If you need a new sales department, you need someone running sales when potentially the founder was the guy running sales before, but you can't interact with 100 clients if you're meant no. to be building a growing company. It's not, it's just not possible. So, okay, what I want to understand, and let's get to the third phase, but I know that the numbers are different and it, it kind of all depends, mm-hmm. but I'm going to put you on the spot. I'm going to- sure. I'm going to ask you to answer it if you can. Like, sure. What are the ranges? So, like, that seed round is that generally like up to five million in revenue, or sure. Or, and and then and then what is this next? What is the middle round? When sure. does that round kind of mature? Sure. I, I think I think you can do generalities with it. Um, I think at a maturity of a company, you're going to get through that. If the company survives, most of them don't right through the seed round. You're going to hit two to five years of company maturity. I think that's really what you're going to get. Um, and obviously, everything's going to be based on how much money do you inject in the company. If it's a balance sheet business, because you're going to leverage those assets on on revenue side. And the other is how big's the the market you can hit with a with a P and L business. But most of these that get to the next stage, I mean, I think you're going to between a range of two million bucks and you know twenty million bucks probably to hit that that second stage, unless you're coming in with just, you know, massive down payments and the guys have done it before. And it's a rinse and repeat business that they know the business already. It's theoretically a startup, but it's a proven model that there are the management team's been doing forever. I think, I think that's where you're going to hit, you know, then, then you get to that second stage and you're building out the scale of your thesis. Right. So I, and I think at that point, you know, then you have another two to five years, of of company life is is what I would say. And that's when you pretty much proven that not only does your revenue model work on a micro basis, whether it's in a city or a state or whatever, but maybe it's a nationwide expansion on that one core business, right? That's the key on the one core business. Maybe it's a, like a regional model, whatever it is. 
So then depending on the life cycle of the company or what kind of like how long the tenure of you've been doing it, you know, I, I think you'll be at that $10 million to $100 million range at that point, depending what markets you're in, right? I mean, if you're in Cambodia, you know, it's going to be a lot harder to get to $100 million revenue multiple mm-hmm. or a revenue amount than if you're in, you know, Silicon Valley. You know, you can, it depends what the product is, depends what your client base is. It's so, depends- sorry, that's, is that revenue or valuation? I'm talking about just revenue, top Got line it. revenue, yep, yep. top line, top line revenue. You know, Got valuation it. is especially on early stage companies. I, I really put the majority of the value that people assign is blue sky. It's what everything going forward. Mm-hmm. You know, your historical, and I, we we talk about with the banks all the time. You know, banks really underwrite your company based on historical performance. But if you do that for early stage company investing. You're you're never gonna have Zero. an accurate. You'd never event. make a single investment, yeah, right? Yeah, you'd never make a single investment, <laughs> yeah. and you really have no idea what yeah. they're doing in the future. Like everything, when you're investing in early stage companies, is what what can they do in the future? How do I know they can do it? And and what's my risk buffer? So usually that's by evaluation adjustment of saying, you know, what 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 happens if it doesn't go right? Right? And mm-hmm. am I overpaying? Am I underpaying? Is the management team right? But everything is always about the future. Because the company's not established, right? It's not a company that's fully developed. It's not Coca-Cola that grows in line with GDP growth. You know, if you're at that level, you can't grow faster than global GDP because you're everywhere, right? But if you're a new soft drink that just started and you're doing $200,000 a year in revenue, you could grow at 1,000% a year for a while before you even hit a dent in Coca-Cola's revenue, right? And so they might not even notice you for 10 years. Um, So- more or less, that's the revenue that I would say between those two. And your portfolio companies, I, I feel like at least the coffee company, is it in the thick of this stage? Is it maybe yeah. towards I, the I would end say of the stage? Or? I, I think we're really in the thick of the of the second stage uh, of a, as a company. I think we've proven thesis when we first, I'd say over the first, it took us about, I would say three or four years to get through that kind of seed level you know, I, we're deploying the amount of capital that makes us a national player now. We're the largest in the country now as a consolidated coffee producer. But and we're definitely. Coffees, by the way, your coffee's really good. I got to give a plug for the coffee. Thank because you. Because your partner, Josh, he sent me some coffee. I'm kind of a coffee snob. So yeah. it is good. It is good <laughs> coffee. And they, you know, they kind of, in the presentation, they go into, you know, all the production stuff they do. And it's it's really cool. We And we actually have some of the those presentations on our site at AltsDB. So I'll make sure to link to those in the show notes. I just had to sure. stop you there because I'm a coffee guy. I had to point out sure. the product needs to be good, folks. It's good coffee, but go on, go on. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Andy. Thank you for the plug. Um, <laughs> but I would say, you know, once you, our core thesis really is growing around, you know, how do you do coffee growing in a better way, right? Mm-hmm. How do you do it in a sustainable way? How do you do it in a scalable manner? How do you run it as a true international corporate? Right. And so now we're in the stage where we're growing outside of our what I would say is like our core nexus. We're buying farmland in other regions. We're scaling our trading operations. And really, that's just an expansion of our core thesis. But we're starting to get into what I would say is the most important aspect of like a third stage. Right. So we're kind of blended between the the kind of models of what I would say is a third stage company is when you find alternative revenue streams. Right. And I think 
that is one of the most important things to take. Once you get your core thesis, a lot of times you have a macro scale, something that you have, it's not, I guess from an investment terminology, be arbitrage, right? You have influence because of your scale or because of the position you have in the market that allows you to penetrate another revenue vertical or another product or, or something. Like for us, it's taking coffee cherry, this coffee comes on a cherry, and we're going to distill that coffee cherry fruit and put it, make pure ethanol, right? And we call that a byproduct in agriculture. The only reason we're able to do that with any kind of monetary value or to do it at scale is because we already have so much like production scale from harvesting coffee itself and selling it as a traditional product, which is roasted coffee, which Andy loves. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, that that's kind of where you got to get to at somewhere in the second stage and say, how do I build out new products, use my position in the market to really supercharge growth. Because typically, whenever you have, it doesn't matter what product or original thesis you're trying to prove, it'll always have some kind of limitation. Whether it's a market limitation, a scale limitation of your management, it'll be something. But there always will be some kind of low-hanging fruit to say, I know our team is capable of a little bit more without a material amount of new investment. I don't have to replace the CEO. I don't have to replace the CFO, but we can get into this other corollary business. And that's and that's what we start developing, right? And, and, and so as, a, as an investor or as an owner of a bit, like if it's in that middle market, what I would say is if you don't have any of that stuff, those extra revenue streams, that growth plan, I could consider that business to be like an annuity, like, okay, great. It, yeah. You know, whatever it has a 10% profit margin and it grows 3% a year or whatever. Yes. And sure. I'll pay seven X for that or, or whatever. I'll pay five X or 10 X earnings or, you know, whatever the multiple yes. is. But then if I'm in your position, I'm like, I just built this kick butt company. I'm not selling this thing for seven X. Are you crazy? But yes. if you can prove, well, actually, we have these three other growth revenue streams teed mm -hmm. up. We have a plan. We have a team in place. Maybe we need a little capital, but we're also generating income that we can reinvest. Mm -hmm. and so that's how we've gotten to this higher level, but we can actually 10 exit from here. And that's where the private markets or the public markets say, okay, we're willing to give you liquidity and we're willing to pay a pretty high multiple off your current earnings. Definitely buy the business, right? And that's Definitely. kind of that's kind of the goal. The goal is not to sell your business for five x earnings. Like, well, shoot, no. I'll just I'll just earn it forever. I'll just own it forever if that's all you're going to pay, right? I think you're right, and I think if you only stuck to one core business, as much as you love to, or anyone loves to, just see a business grow and grow and grow over again, mm -hmm. there will always be that limitation. And I think if you don't show, if management doesn't show flexibility. In the ability to think critically about where do I sit in the market? What value do I really have? What more value can I generate? Am I doing the right thing with investors capital? Uh, they won't get more capital, right? So if I if I personally was to see a business that wants to do the exact same thing, rinse and repeat year over year for 20 years, no way. I, I don't think there's any business that I would look at and say, I just want you to do the exact same thing year over year and not change and critically think about where you are at least once a year on an annual summary, you know, and just just rinse and repeat. I, I don't think it'll be, I'll put it this way, it will be incredibly challenging for that group to get access to a material amount of capital uh, to keep doing that. You'd have to just keep regurgitating, I think, earnings into it, and it would just be 
You become like a walking zombie company. Well, it might be you. You'd almost be like a utility company or something. It'd be oh, like, of course, it's just so pretty. Which it does. It's not that it has no value. It's just again, limited. why? Yeah, why do I want to exit something at a really low multiple? You would absolutely, right? absolutely. If, so, Cole, you've done a really good job of kind of showing us these three phases, and and I wanted I had a couple of the questions for you, but before we sure. leave this last phase. I wanted to get your opinion. We talked numbers, the first phase, that second phase, and you made the point that different companies are going public for different reasons at, mm -hmm. at different levels. But what if, if we're talking about kind of a normal, typical, hate to use the word, typical mm -hmm. IPO, at what scale, at what valuation does it make sense, right? Because being a public sure. company, there's, there's trade-offs, right? There's pros and there's cons to being publicly traded. And there's mm -hmm. also, there's expenses associated with it, right? In, That's right. Internal to the company. So when do you really hit scale in terms of revenue or valuation to where you should even be considering it or, or looking at it as an option? Sure. I think, you know, for us, whenever we talk about going public, I, I really would be hesitant as a bar under like $100 million of revenue. I'd be, I'd be very hesitant. Now, you'll see what I would call like financial engineering companies to where you'll see guys go public with $5 million, $10 million of revenue. And a lot of these guys, they they know public markets. They might be actually, some of these companies will be run by ex-investment bankers. Mm -hmm. uh, and they're they're looking for like pumps, like just pump up the rep, pump up revenue a bit, pump up valuations. Uh, and then we'll try to make a bunch of money on some kind of liquidity event. Sometimes they're, they're going concerned companies, but I wouldn't say they're going concerned companies, right? They're not building companies for the next 50 years. They're building them for the next five years maximum. Um, so you don't see, I don't, I don't think you see a lot of companies that are coming in for what I would say is the right corporate reasons mm -hmm. at, at under about a hundred million dollars of revenue. You know, we have certain advisors around us that say us, you know, don't go public before you hit a billion in revenue, right? There are a lot of reporting requirements for public companies. You are under more scrutiny. You know, you basically have access. You could privately do diligence the company with the amount of information at any point in time, right? You have to re continuously report to the SEC and the public. Uh, and a lot of companies don't want to do that. They don't want to, I mean, theoretically, your business model is completely up for grabs as well. I mean, it's completely transparent. If someone wanted to know exactly what your strategy is, exactly where you're going, so public company, you have to tell your shareholders that, and then it's public knowledge, right? So theoretically, your competitor knows more or less what you're trying to do. Theoretically, if they're a good competitor, they would have known either way, but you mm -hmm. do have to do that. Um, and I, I think you know more than just the revenue amount of of what's important and what the valuation on that revenue is, it becomes you know is your goal just a primary issuance of capital, right? Is it look I'm going public because I need to raise $500 million. You know That kind of liquidity is easily available a lot of times with one counterparty, whether you're talking to sovereign funds or larger private equity funds. Um, a lot of times you can raise that from one counterparty, depending on what the nature of your business is, right? Mm -hmm. So when you, but when you get up into the multiple billions of dollars, you know the amount of counterparties that can do that transaction starts going down. Right. So suddenly, if you say, look, I need a one ticket, one or $12 billion, suddenly you're looking at a few sovereign funds, a couple big private equity funds. Well, and yeah, no, I, I get that. My question is at the at the kind of middle level of that, let's say definitely you're looking for 500 million. Is is there. 
do you take a, a penalty if you try and get that money, you know, privately? Like, is there a premium attached to your revenue and earnings in the public markets? I, I historically, I feel like there has been, but anymore, I'm not so sure. Is that still it's, the case? It's difficult. When I was doing when I was doing M and A in Hong Kong, uh, in our our business, my background was really buying banks, insurance companies, you know, asset managers, you know, gold mines in Xinjiang province in China. You know, we would try to get as much data as we could on private market transactions. The number one thing a private equity manager or private market wants to do is not get you the details on a valuation multiple that they paid in a private market transaction. So it's, it's nearly impossible to get the information. But what we saw when we we're doing transactions in Asia is a lot of times for companies, when you're going through diligence with buying a bank, insurance company, any, any, any basic enterprise value transactions, you'll take public market multiples as a benchmark, and then private money will come in and potentially overbid that, right? And they'll mm -hmm. keep you private because they either don't want to give up the business model, they want their, they want everything to be confidential, they don't want to deal with the regulation. What, there's a number of reasons, depending on which public market. Obviously, the United States isn't the only public market in the world. You have Hong Kong, London, Germany, you know, a bunch of islands in the Caribbean, tons of public markets. But there's a number of reasons why you don't want to do it. So, but I guess to more appropriately address your question is, I there's definitely instances where private markets will pay you a higher valuation to stay private than what they will in public markets. And we've seen that. I remember we, we had a study at Pricewaterhouse about family office purchases. And family offices were paying premiums on public market valuations because one, they don't want to be a public market like entrant of uh, information. So obviously, mm. when you're a public company, top five shareholders get reported and you have to like drill down into almost like a UBO, ultimate beneficiary owner. A lot of private money does not want to be on those lists. They do not want to be on the 50 richest people in Forbes, right? That is not their goal. They want to stay under right. the radar. So if they think a company is very valuable and they don't want to take LP positions, they want 100%, they pay premiums on, on public market transactions. Now, obviously, uh, public equity or private equity is, they're not dumb guys. They, they're not there to overpay for transactions. I'm sure there's a lot of transactions that close below a public market approach. But what I'm saying is, you know, to reach back to where we started, dual tracking a company is for that exact purpose. So you can play off each other, right? So that ultimately the same counterparty, if you're talking to a managing director at Goldman, he's saying, I'll underwrite this transaction. I'll buy the entire block at this price. You can also have the exact same conversation with someone that's a, a TPG who's running a, a private equity book. And he'll say, look, I'll buy the whole company for this. And you can do those at the exact same time you're talking to a corporate and they say, look, I'm the I'm the head of M&A for X, Y, and Z corporate. We're an internal M&A firm. This is how we do internal transactions at X, Y, Z corporate. And this is the kind of valuations we look at, right? So you can do all three of those at the exact same time. But mm. the stage you need to be as a company to be able to engage in that conversation is exactly yeah. the same, is exactly That's, the same. It reminds me, you know, th this reminds me a little bit of like, I read a book about the private art market, you know, invest mm -hmm. investment grade art and and like Sotheby's and Christie's and these auction houses. Sure. And how they will kind of work clients and and be like, hey, we have, you know, we have a Monet, it's a haystack. It's we think it might bring 60, 75 million at auction. 
yeah. you can buy it, you can buy it privately for 55, but uh-huh. we're happy to let it go to auction if you want, mm-hmm. you know, if you want to miss out. Yes. And, 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 you know, public market versus the private deal. And That's it's right. funny. It's that kind of human psychology. I don't care if you're the most sophisticated I banker in the world, sovereign wealth fund, private equity, that human psychology of there's a deal kind of behind the scenes being privately shopped. Definitely. There's information asymmetry, you know, and it's oh, like, yeah. I think that can work to the the seller's favor. Absolutely. I, I can't tell you the amount of times because when you're, especially when you're young and you're working in the business kind of growing up and you think everything's based on valuation models, everyone does everything based on the same kind of weighted average cost of capital. So everyone must come up with the same valuation. That is not at all true. It's the exact, it's like the exact opposite of that when you come with enterprise value of companies. One person will say, look, it's worth 600 million. Another person will say it's worth 250. Another person will say it's worth a billion, right? And it yeah. will be vastly different. And depending on the scale of the business, the valuation ranges will be huge. I remember in, again, in Hong Kong, we used to put out valuation reports for huge banks, lending portfolios, loan blocks, all kinds of stuff. And I mean, you'd be in the valuations of 300, 400, $500 billion on, on loan books, and then you're valuing the whole company, blah, blah, blah. And you'd be looking at ranges and you would just pick a range in between like a median of two ranges, but your range of evaluation might be 400, you're worth between 400 and $600 million. So we're going to say you're worth $500 million. I'm going to tell you what, to the guys who own that bank, a uh, $100 million swing means a lot. Right. Yeah. But that's it. That to me is a giant swing. And that's what you do with the biggest companies in the world. And when I learned that, I say, oh, I guess all these companies are 100 percent negotiable. And when I come to Columbia and see how companies do here, it's it's exactly that market. Everything is 100 percent negotiable. And it all depends on who you're talking to, what the value yeah, and is. C- Cole, totally. It re- that really hits home. I'm thinking there are so many things like this and, and I won't get political, I promise. But Something sure. that's really art. It's something that's art. Yes. And that we pretend that it's science. That's right? right. So I know as a private equity buyer, definitely I'll look at the numbers. Yes. Usually what's in the back of my mind is enterprise value, growth definitely. rate. And I'm kind of more, I'm more painting the picture internally of how big can, can this get? And what does the organization look like three or five years from now? And and I'm basing an evaluation on a combination of that versus also the current situation and the current cash flow. But anyway, I kind of I usually come up with my valuation in my stomach. Yes, which I I don't know what to call that besides art and experience or or whatever you want to call it. And then sometimes it's like, okay, I guess I need to make a pro forma or something to yeah. justify. <laughs> but I just I know myself. Yeah. You know, I'll be honest with you. Like we're not in a transaction right now, but it's mm-hmm. just like. A lot of it is just my gut feel. This is what this is worth to me. And then I understand, you know, the nerds need to come in with their pocket protectors. And totally. Pro forma. I agree with you. And just being one of the nerds and in the past, and I guess I'm not that cool right now. I'm probably still one of the nerds. <laughs> you know, I've, I've seen that transaction. I have literally seen transactions where private companies are buying a public bank. I remember this transaction in Hong Kong and a private company was buying a public bank. The transaction price was already agreed before and they hired all the legal accounting, eye banking diligence to rubber stamp it. 
right? It's just a rubber stamp. Everything was already handshaken, agreed. And this is, a, this is over a billion dollar transaction, right? Wow. And so everything is just there to kind of support the opinion of the chairman of the private company saying, I'm buying this no matter what. And you need to give me a bunch of high level professional firms to make it look like I'm making a smart idea. Like this is a smart transaction. And that was the purpose of the whole like diligence round you're doing. And and it's a real transaction. I mean, these are billion dollar transactions. And, you know, they do have that art versus science approach that you're saying that that happens every day. It happens. These kind of transactions happen every day. I want this bank. Why? Because I want it. I want this asset. Why? Because we need it because it adds to the portfolio. Well, how do you how much how much is that worth? I don't know, but I think it's gonna be worth a lot. Let's put a billion dollars on it. And that might be the mandate of how you place a $10 billion private equity portfolio. And then you'll get all, you'll get the nerds, I agree, to put together all the numbers that make you look smart. But it, it, a lot of times it'd be one or two guys who's saying, look, I know this is going to work in the future. I'm positive. I know the macro scheme. I don't know how much it's worth, but I know it's worth more than our cost of capital. So we're going to put it in. And, and by the way, that's okay. I, I'm not even denigrating, I'm not denigrating myself or anyone who operates that way because- Sometimes you have an experienced, smart investor. They have something in their gut. Sure. And and they're right. And I'm looking back, like the best private equity investment I've ever made on paper, I wildly overpaid. Yeah. You know, and it like <laughs> I, I think there was yes. probably nobody else in the world that would have made the investment that I made. But mm-hmm. I was like, I know these this team, I know these three people. I like this, you know, recurring revenue model. Mm-hmm. And so I'm like, I'm just going to overpay because I just have a feeling. And that's that's like sure. literally that it's literally the best investment I've ever made, let alone private equity investment. And I think even at the billion dollar level, take someone like S- Steve Jobs, you mm-hmm. know, when he was running Apple, like, do I want to follow his gut or do I want to follow what the research team learned in their focus group? I'm like, no, yeah. I'll, <laughs> I'll take his gut. Right. That's right. That's right. I agree with you 100. percent And a lot of a lot of it, honestly, and we didn't we didn't talk about it a lot. A lot of it's investing in people, and it and it's a word or a phrase that's a cliche. I know when it gets thrown around a lot, but the longer you get to spend with the people that run the companies and understand their thought process, understand their strategy behind what they're doing, if they come up with a really reasonable strategy, and if it works or doesn't work, it almost doesn't matter to me if I understand why they came up with it. And it's a logical process and say, all right, we tested this out, didn't work. So I had to make it migrate and do something else with the same kind of resources, whatever. I think that is probably almost more important than what the numbers say. You know, Understanding the thought process behind and say, look, if this guy's going to come into trouble, is he going to be able to get out of it? Or is it, you know, a one trick pony and say, if this doesn't work, it's over. Right. And so I think your Steve Jobs example is a great example as is some people that run companies there. The truth is they are exceptional. Right. And it doesn't matter what happens. They're still going to be exceptional. Maybe the business model is not exceptional, but they are and they can figure out problems better than other people can. And so if you can find those people, a lot of times I know it sounds like horse betting, but you're betting on that horse. Maybe the valuation doesn't make sense. But if you say, this guy can really do something special, you bet on the horse. Absolutely. Cole, I, I love this conversation we've had. Uh, honestly, I, you know, you sent me this framework ahead of time. And you know, so I kind of understood there were three phases in everything. 
but it mm-hmm. kind of took a surprising turn because, yeah. <laughs> you know, and you even pointed out like, you know, I, I wouldn't call you a nerd, but you're like, I'm an accounting nerd or, or whatever. Yes. But th- this is all about people. It's all about people and, and ideas and, and talented people building organizations. So it's like amazing. I feel like, how do you take a, a company public? How do you IPO a company? If I could sum up what you've taught me today, the answer is people. That's right. Special people. I think that's that's what brings you to the next level is how do you get like this is the way I, I think about building a company is how do I make enough money or raise enough money to get the best people around me that I know the company is like buying an insurance contract. I know this company is going to work no matter what. I can't tell you whether we're going to go to the moon or we're going to go to the top of this mountain. But if yeah. we only get to the top of this mountain, it's still going to be pretty great. Right. But the people are what's going to get you to the next level more than way more than what the capital is way, way more buying the best people you can get. And I say buying, but really, it's sometimes when you're at the seed stage and I've been there, you're begging, pleading because you can't pay people. You don't have any money. Right. You don't have any money. So you're pleading to be like, let me present my idea. We're going to do all these things. And then the next level, you can actually start to pay people. And then at the next level, you probably start to feel like you're overpaying people. But you got to keep the best people around and yep. they're going to be what brings you to the next level. I agree with you 100%. I love that, Cole. So I know we're we're short on time, sure. um, but I'm going to make sure to link to all, everything we discussed today. I'll link in our show notes, which are always available at altsdb.com slash podcast. Uh, that being said, Cole, where can our audience of advisors and high net worth in, uh, investors go to learn more about Legacy Group and your offerings? Sure. Sure. So you can see our website at legacy-group.co or you can follow us on LinkedIn. Just look for Legacy Group and we should be the first one on there. Thanks so much, Cole, for recording this today. This was an awesome conversation. I really appreciate you. Thank you, Andy. That was fun. That's it for today's show. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a rating and review to help spread the word to other investors. And we'll be back soon with another episode.